Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Paul Cartledge about his study of the origins and development of democracy in the Western world, entitled Democracy, a Life. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. It's lovely to be on. It's great to have you on. I wonder, if you, you could, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay, well, I'm uh, a retired professor of Greek culture, and I've been teaching and uh, being in Cambridge in various ways since 1979. But I started off my academic life in Oxford as an undergraduate at New College, Oxford. I then did a doctorate in archaeology and history with John Boardman, Sir John Boardman, as he now is. He's still with us, age 90. And so I was in Oxford altogether something like seven years. Then I had three or four academic posts, some in Ireland, some in the Midlands, in this country, in England, and I've been in Cambridge since 1979, and I retired formally in 2014 from my university chair. But I hold a senior research fellowship for which I'm co-directing with an American colleague, actually, from Dartmouth uh, called Paul Christensen, a project called The Oxford History of the Archaic Greek World. But the book we're talking about is the product of my final three to four years of teaching and lecturing at uh, Cambridge when I was A.G. Lavendi's professor of Greek culture. And the lecture course was 24 hours within one term, so three hours a week, eight-week terms. And I taught and talked to both historians, that is, people reading for the history, tripos, as we call it, that means BA degree course, and also the classics tripos. So some of them knew very little, if any, ancient Greek, whereas my classics auditors, they knew Greek quite well. So I had to pitch it somewhere between those who knew Greek and those who knew no Greek. It's fascinating that it this comes out of that uh, teaching that you were doing prior to your retirement, considering that its release is so timely and so topical with these issues that we've been discussing as a society for the past uh, few years. This issue of democracy and its health and, and, and with people questioning its survival in the modern world. You're completely right, and I'm sorry that we have to say we're questioning its survival, but I'll come back to that. You're completely right. We're in a very extraordinary moment, I think, in Western democracy. And the book came out originally in hardcovers, both in the States, it's Oxford Press, New York, and in Oxford, Oxford, England, in 2014. It, uh, sorry, that was when I completed the lectures. The book was published in 2016, in March, April time. And that was in the middle of two big campaigns on your side of the pond, the presidential 
presidential campaign, which eventuated in the election of um, uh, President Trump. And on our side of the water, the referendum campaign, we call it the Brexit, that is Britain exiting from the European Union referendum campaign. Followed by, in 2017, and I've written an afterword to the book, which came out very recently in paperback. The paperback edition was published on April the 12th of 2018. And in 2017, following on the 2016 upheavals, we've had um, two more general elections. One in this country, the UK, a snap general election, where the then Prime Minister and still Prime Minister, the leader of our our Conservative Party, the largest party in Parliament, hoped to get a bigger majority so that she could push through the sort of Brexit deal that she wanted to do with our European currently partners. As it turned out, enough people voted against the Conservative government that actually we now have a hung parliament. So the governing party does not have an overall majority in our House of Commons. Very extraordinary followed by the French presidential election, which is much more like um, an American presidential election, except it happens over a shorter period of time, and there are two rounds. So, And the first round is designed to eliminate all but two candidates who then go forward to the end. And the extraordinary phenomenon of an entirely new party, after France, the Fifth Republic had had many uh, years of just basically two major parties, the Socialist Party and the Gaullist Party. Suddenly, extraordinarily, Macron comes on en avance, uh, forwards with Macron, a new party, and he wins convincingly against, well, I'm going to be frank, a race and fascist of the National Front. And so um, politics in not only your part, your part of the world, but our European part of the world has become extraordinarily unsettled. And this has been reflected further in 2017-2018 by what's been going on within the European Union countries. And I'm thinking of Austria, where a very right-wing party nearly came uh, to power. I'm thinking of Holland, where a right-wing party was thought to be going to win, but fortunately didn't. I'm thinking of Hungary, where the existing regime has taken a turn for the right. The same can be said of Slovakia, and the same can be said of Hungary. Uh, there seems to be a, well, shall we say, an authoritarian inflection of politics. What do you think a study of the origins and development of democracy in the ancient world has to offer to help us understand this time in which we live? I had three main aims in uh, writing my book and in delivering the lectures on which the book is based. First, to try to explain the origins, development, the emergence of this quite extraordinary, and I would argue unique phenomenon, namely people power, which is what the original ancient Greek word demokratia means. Demos people, that is the adult um, population of empowered citizens, and power meaning really direct uh, self-government, 
by mass meeting, one could almost say. There was an infrastructure and there are smaller councils and so on and so on, which enable the mass meetings to work and to be effective. But broadly speaking, the analogy is of a, a huge sort of rally, which happened um, every month or so. And um, this was the Athenian democracy. The Athenians invented the word, they invented the thing. Then I wanted to track what influence and impact the fact that the Athenians originated this extraordinary, unprecedented mode of self-governance, what impact did that have on the rest of the Greek world? And it's very important to remember that ancient Greece is not a single country. It's not like Greece today. It was a mixture of about a thousand separate Greek political communities scattered all around the Mediterranean, around the Black Sea. And the Greek word for the type of community that they lived in was polis. And it's from that that all our political words are directly derived. And then having looked at the way in which democracy spread out from Athens, sometimes by direct influence, um, for example, Athens would have allies and it would either insist or encourage its allies to become democratic in some sort of similar way. But though democracy spread, it never spread to every other Greek community, possibly no more than a quarter at any one time. So we're talking about 250 or so. And they weren't all by any means as radically, as extremely democratic. There were various checks and balances on the power of the people, such that you've got lots of different kinds of democracy. It's very important to remember there was no one ancient Greek democracy. And then the third aim, and this is where we come on to, uh, I think, what lies behind really why we are talking to each other now, which is what happened to democracy when it ceased, or as I see it sometimes when it was assassinated uh, in the ancient world, how, why, when and where did the concept of something like people power re-emerge? Why was the word democracy revived and spread around such that, at any rate in the West, by which I mean pretty much most of Europe and the North American continent, some parts of South America, and sometimes Japan, why did the word democracy and versions of democracy come back into currency? Well, being an ancient historian, I'm a historian of ancient Greece by specialization. One of my main goals is to make clear, first of all, what we mean when we say democracy in ancient Greece. What, what are the essential common elements of that very interesting word? But then second, and not quite secondarily, but um, not quite as importantly, because I am an ancient historian, what exactly are the differences between their versions of democracy and our versions are they transferable? In other words, are there any elements of ancient democracy that we really could do with introducing? Or conversely, is it the case that though the word is the same, the thing, the actual mode of governance is radically different? And if I can just end on um, this point for this uh, moment, 
One way in which we recently in this country, that is in the United Kingdom, have resorted to a mode of democracy that is actually originally ancient is by using the referendum. And the point about a referendum is that everybody has one vote. We're not voting for parliamentary representatives, which is the normal mode of political elections and voting under our kind of representative indirect democracy, but you're actually posed a simple question, typically yes, no, in this case, leave or stay in the European Union. And people uh, as I say, have one person, one vote. Now, this is not normal politics, whereas for the ancient Athenians, that was indeed the normal way in which they would proceed. On the agenda would be an issue, and here are the various ways in which you'd be resolved, taken forward or thrown out. Um, raise your hand, yes or no, uh, to the proposition before you. But that was normal, and they had ways of coping if there were problems. If there was a very narrow majority, for example, well, they'd meet again. They'd meet a month later, whatever. But we have, I think, rather saddled ourselves with um, difficulties by introducing an alien mode of political decision-making to try to resolve problems of, well, they're generated partly by party politics. This is one way in which modern politics party politics is completely different from ancient. The ancient Greeks and indeed the Romans, they didn't have parties. I'd like to take your uh, structure in turn and, and go through the book uh, in, in that way. And I'd like to begin by, by talking about that issue of the, the origin and, and development of democracy in, uh, in, in the early Greek world. Could you explain uh, where it is that it came from and, and, and how it came to be, and also how it came to be so clearly identified with just Athens, as opposed to, as you described, all of these other city-states which adopted various forms of it as well. Yes, that's an extremely good question, but also, of course, a very complex one, because it's partly a matter of institutions, how you take decisions, but it's partly a matter of ethos and custom, that is, what you think politics is, how you think politics should be done, by whom, for what purposes. And as I mentioned already, the word polis is one that gives us political politics and all that. And one translation of it is city-state. Well, that's bringing out the point that we're not talking about nation-state, we're not talking about large territorial states, we're talking about small um, groupings with an urban centre, not necessarily terribly urbanised. And the notion of the polis, that is the unit within which politics is going to take place, emerged round about um, well, shall we say 700 BC, the, the decades leading up to 700 and after 700. Now, this is a long time. It's up to 200 years before Athens developed something like early democracy, though it, to begin with, doesn't actually have the word democracy. It does a form of democracy, but it doesn't yet have the word. 
So you've got a long period of development. You've got many, many Greek cities. One of the elements is the very notion of belonging, of participation, of citizenship. So the Greeks drew quite sharp boundaries around people who are and people who are not entitled to take part in politics. So broadly speaking, a citizen is somebody who is free, not a slave, who is legitimate, that is born within wedlock, not out of wedlock, and is raised within a community of common um, people who speak the same language, the same dialect, and they come from, roughly speaking, the same sort of uh, ethnic background. So let's take the Athenians. Their polis, the city-state of Athens, is centered on Athens. That's the urban center. But it encompassed an area of something like a thousand square miles. So that's something like the size of, I mean, it's very small. I wouldn't know an American equivalent, but Luxembourg uh, in um, modern European terms. So people of the right age, that is adults and birth, they're free and legitimate. They're Athenian. They qualify, they are entered on the uh, relevant register, or at any rate, those who are in power know that they are Athenians. They have certain rights, they have certain common features. They are all citizens of Athens. Even if they live up to 70, um, 40, 70 miles away from Athens, well, it takes quite a long time from the time that the city is brought into being as a city, and it goes through various phases. So we start off, crudely speaking, with a form of aristocracy. That's to say power is restricted just to those of a certain birth. These are people, they call themselves, they, they like to distinguish themselves as well-fathered persons. So they're persons of descent from aristocrats of one sort. How do you define an aristocrat? Well, he's someone who ultimately claims descent from a hero or a god. Very interesting about Greeks that on the one hand, they're very religious. On the other hand, they quite clearly distinguish the things of the gods from the things of men. So humans run their own political communities with the help of the gods, with the aid of the gods in association with the gods. From aristocracy, and of course I'm making it sound very automatic, but actually of course you get um, contestations. The next stage of political development is oligarchy, that is it's not enough um, to be um, well-born, because you could also be rich but not well-born, and still qualify to hold relevant offices, to sit on relevant councils or juries, to make decisions for the community. And it seems that this development was the result of a great deal of unrest and discontent of a particularly economic nature involving debt. And in a particular crisis, round about 600 BC, so we're talking about 100 years or so after the city has taken shape, a lawgiver called Solon is empowered by the ruling aristocrats to bring forward legislation which will empower non-aristocrats so long as they are rich. So you have from an aristocracy, you go to an aristocratic oligarchy. 
And what's going on, as well as the struggle between rich and poor, between tenants and landlords, for example, or employers and uh, workers, you also have a struggle between and within the elite. So in other words, aristocrats and oligarchs don't all agree on policy. Well, in the middle of the 6th century BC, we're all BC, that's before Christ, or BCE, before the Common Era. Round about 550, things got pretty bad, you know, really nasty, so almost civil war within the elite, which produced what the Greeks called a tyrant and a, a single ruler, autocratic, not legitimate in the sense that he's ruling outside the framework of the existing laws and by force, a man called Pisistratus. He and his sons managed to establish a tyranny for something like 35 years. That chugged along okay until a tiff, it seems. There was really quite unpleasant sort of personal jockeying for power within the elite, resulted in the younger brother of the then reigning tyrant being assassinated. That caused, I think there were underlying structural problems, a great sort of dissension within the Athenian people, exploited by one of the Athenians' enemies, and Greek cities didn't always get on with each other very well. And this was the city of Sparta, which had uh, taken a very different trajectory, which there's no time to go into uh, here. At any rate, it sought to impose its own candidate as the successor tyrant. So in other words, you get rid of one tyrant family and you impose another as part of your foreign policy. That seems to have generated a very widespread discontent among many Athenians with the very notion of a tyranny at all, especially if it's going to be imposed from outside. And so the slogan that emerges is equality and freedom for Athenian people from tyranny and freedom to decide their own political future. And this is where and the, the gentleman in question, he's called Cleisthenes, from an aristocratic family, puts forward a program which though it's not called democracy, ushers in a, what should we call, proto-democracy. So we're talking round about 500 BC. And then from there on, there is um, another uh, aggravating factor, though in fact it worked out for the Athenians extremely well. The Greeks lived on the fringes of one of the biggest, fastest growing uh, empires that there has ever been, and this is the Persian Empire. For complicated reasons, the Persians decided to try to expand further to the west to incorporate more Greeks, including the Greeks of mainland Greece and therefore including Athens. This generated the same sort of reaction that the Athenians had experienced to Spartan intervention. So it pulled them together and it made them take the step from a moderate proto kind of democracy to a quite radical kind of, of democracy, the ultimate basis of which being if the Athenians are going to survive, they're not going to be conquered. If they're going to cut any sort of figure 
in the world, they're going to have to develop a navy. The navy is um, rowed, this is an oared warship navy, by poor people. Poor Athenians win major battles against the Persians trying to conquer them by invasion. The Athenians, therefore, link together success in war against the Persian, internal and external freedom, and they come up with the word democracy, democratia, the power of the mass of the ordinary people. In your book, you describe how Athenian democracy worked in practice. And it was a very interesting discussion because you get into the various ways that it functioned, not just in terms of direct decision-making, but you talk about such things as juries, the, the, the role of the people in a variety of decision-making. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon some of those other methods uh, that the Athenians practiced this concept of popular governance. It's an extremely good question. Again, I started out by saying that, in a sense, one can reduce Athenian democracy, you can in a way caricature it, by saying it's government by mass meeting. Well, that is the meetings of the assembly, the ecclesia, uh, French word eglise, and ecclesiastical derived from it. It means people who are called out to then perform a political function. Anybody could speak, and there is an agenda drawn up by a steering committee and then people know in advance what's on the agenda. It's once a month to begin with, and then it gradually gets more frequent. And ultimately, they met every nine days, extraordinarily, um, as it were, legislating and so on. But that was not the limit of what it was to be a democratic citizen. The Athenians did not have the modern Western post-18th century notion of the separation of powers of government. So in other words, the same people both legislated and sat in judgment as jurors on the legality of um, particular uh, legislation, and also they performed um, the function of um, holding office, being executive officers. So the same people did all these things. They didn't distinguish the powers of government as we, since the 18th century, first in Britain, then in France and America, do. So you mentioned jurors in particular. Interestingly, jurors were also judges. That's to say, there was no expert telling the Athenians what the law was. There was no notion of precedent. You have a case, and it might be involving a very senior political figure, or it might be a more private um, issue. There are different sorts of courts for different sorts of cases. But the key thing is this, that the people sitting on the juries were empaneled annually by lot. And the use of the lottery, so people put their name forward and they have to recruit out of those who put their names forward 6,000 every year. You have a permanent panel of potential jurors. The court sat on roughly, on average, every other day. And people were paid to sit as jurors because you'd be taking time off your work in the fields or the workshop or, or whatever. And the Athenians did not have uh, the notion of um, justice and um, legislation as being non-political. Uh, it was absolutely okay for 
um, pretty much anything to be dragged in if, um, let's say, a very well-known politician, let's say Themistocles, the man who was most responsible for persuading the Athenians to adopt the kind of warfare that they did, which enabled them to win the Battle of Salamis in 480 and so beat back the Persian invasion. Well, he might be found, uh, put on trial and Pretty much anything which today you and I would consider irrelevant, um, this would be material insofar as the issue was, is it better for the city of Athens, for the people of the Athenians, that Themistocles be found guilty and punished, or conversely, that he be let off, that he be found not guilty. And the most famous example of this, I suppose, the most notorious, is that of uh, Socrates, who did hold some public office, but was not a major politician or general. He was a, an average citizen in that sense. But what he um, well, I, I almost used the word preached, but um, the ideas that he that he promulgated, because he was not uh, he was religious, but uh, he's not uh, um, putting forward religious doctrine specifically. But he did get into trouble for. Um, somewhat, shall we say, unorthodox uh, or not usual views. He was accused of impiety. But the, the secondary charge against him, which was uh, just as important, was that he was accused of treason because Athens at the end of the 5th century BC, so it's been a democracy for getting on for 100 years, loses a major war against Sparta. And Athens-Sparta, they keep um, coming up against each other in conflict. And this time the, the Spartans won and won big and they imposed their own regime. They ended um, the democracy temporarily and imposed a very narrow oligarchy of pro-Spartan partisans. Anyway, once they, that regime was removed in its turn, it didn't last very long, it was very unstable, the Spartans withdrew support. The Athenian Democrats thought, look, we're going to punish those Athenians who in any way contributed to the Spartan takeover and the oligarchic um, regime, or in some ways um, weakened the fabric of the Athenian um, way of life. And so Socrates was thought to be fair game, and he was found guilty of impiety, and he was required, obliged to eat and drink the hemlock, which was the way in which people actually administered um, the, the drug to themselves. So in a way, they committed suicide. So being a juryman was something that you would put your name forward so that you go on the panel and then you have no say. It's purely due to random chance which law courts you happen to sit on when. But suppose you were chosen by lot to sit on the trial of Socrates, you'd be one of 501 jurors. You'd hear his speech defense, you'd hear the prosecution speech, then you'd make a decision, guilty or not guilty, then you would hear a speech uh, by Socrates, look, I think my penalty should be this, of course I disagree with your decision, but if I must pay a penalty, and then the prosecution would say, I want this um, penalty, and they wanted, of course, death, and that is in fact what happened. One of the points that you make in the book about this era, which I thought was really fascinating, is that is that the events of of, of this trial uh, to just you know situate it chronologically uh, occur uh, 
you know, just right before the fourth uh, century uh, BCE. And when we talk about uh, historically, when we've talked about ancient Greece, we tend to think of the golden age of Athenian democracy as being this the preceding period, the the, the age of Pericles. And yet, you make an argument that, in fact, that uh, this the trial that takes place is happens prior to the golden age, which you which you argue is more properly situated in the fourth century rather than the fifth century. Right. Well, that's actually after the uh, 5th century. So, I mean, we are going down from 5 to 4 on a BC basis. So Socrates' trial, you're quite right, is right at the beginning of what we call the 4th century BC. Of course, they had no idea of this BC AD because that, <laughs> that was a distinction which was formulated in the 6th century, as we say, AD or CE by a Byzantine monk. And he actually got the date of Jesus's birth wrong, but I won't go into that. But Socrates um, is tried at the beginning of what I, you're quite right, I do suggest is as interesting or as admirable a period of democracy as the very well-known, the famous one, um, you're quite right to mention, in connection with Pericles. So to me, an era which produces Plato and Xenophon and Demosthenes, Plato and Xenophon are oligarchs, they're not Democrats, they think democracy is a stupid system because it empowers stupid people who are ignorant and fickle and emotional and really only the elite who are smart and well-educated and preferably well-born should rule. But Demosthenes, though he was rich, he wasn't an aristocrat, and he was very pro the people in the same way that Pericles, who was an aristocrat and very rich, had been pro the people. So the the masses need leaders and they need sympathetic pro-democratic leaders. But the democracy of the fourth century is a more, um, what should we say, cautious democracy. In other words, they reckoned that one of the reasons why they had lost the Peloponnesian War, as we call it, the war with the Spartans, why the Spartans had been able to impose a nasty form of um, dictatorship, really, oligarchy upon them, was that they themselves had made terrible mistakes of a democratic kind. In other words, they'd been too democratic, or they had broken their own rules. For example, by treating an assembly meeting as if it was a courtroom, when really the two things should be kept separate. So they took various measures to prevent errors like that happening again. And democracy rattled on, uh, I think, quite positively. And actually, the percentage of the citizen population actively taking part on a regular day-to-day basis went up in the 4th century as compared to the 5th century. So for another 80-odd years, democracy happened in Athens between about 400 and 320 BC before a combination of anti-democratic Athenians, Macedonians, Greeks from the north, led by Philip, King Philip II, and then his son Alexander, who becomes Alexander the Great. They defeated Athens, a major battle, and Athens... um, Well, it made some mistakes. It thought it could resist the Macedonian conquest when it really wasn't strong enough to do so. And so eventually the Macedonians, who were overlords of Greece, they got fed up with these pesky Athenian Democrats and uh, terminated the democracy in 322 BC. 
So it, what I liked about that was that it does force us to reconsider the notion of the health of democracy. I think that the way it's, it was situated, you know, pop, uh, his, you know, traditionally creates the sense that it was in decline uh, prior to that point. Yes. You're describing this, this, this democracy that's in, in actually very rude health. And so we get to this point where you, by the end of the fourth century, you you get to this, what you have characterized earlier uh, in, in our interview as a assassination. And yet you also describe how it, it's, it, it may be an assassination, but there is sort of a, a limping along of, of democratic, uh, I, of, of, of democratic forms or democratic uh, concepts into the Hellenistic, Hellenistic period and even into uh, the Roman Republic. You're completely right. We, we use the word Hellenistic to describe the period after the classical. This is a period ushered in by Alexander's conquests of the Middle East, defeating the Persian Empire that had ruled there for a couple of hundred years. And instead of um, independent city-states, all the Greeks of the Aegean area and of Asia are corralled under one or other of these territorial monarchies based either in North Greece or in Asia, uh, for example, in um, what's today Iraq and uh, in Egypt, the the so-called Ptolemies based on Alexandria in Egypt. So the very notion of freedom and politics have to uh, take a dive. They, They are somewhat diminished. And what happens to the word democracy and to democratic practices is that if you're not directly ruled by one of these monarchs, one of these territorial monarchs, you don't actually have his garrison planted upon you or his puppet ruling you directly. And there were some like that. Then you say that you are still a democracy in this sense, that you're an independent sort of republic. And what I, um, this is actually quite controversial. There are some people who think that there is more life to the word democracy, democratia, than I'm prepared to give it uh, um, myself. I, I tend to think that though they banged on about the word, it was actually a mask for, in practice, a creeping oligarchization. That's to say, in order to perform um, particular functions to hold office, to sponsor uh, an athletics uh, competition, whatever. In other words, the normal things that previously had been done with public funds at the discretion of the people as a whole were now in the control of elite individual peoples. And this applied to Athens no less than to other cities. For example, the education system of late teenagers, um, we call it the bait, which had been a key element of being you know, on the cusp of becoming a full Athenian citizen. You go through a kind of national service, mainly military. Well, that became eventually in Athens um, restricted just to an elite few. And that seems to me a classic illustration of the way in which Athens becomes steadily uh, oligarchized over the third century, the second century. And there are occasionally attempts to revive more in the way of direct democracy. And this is prompted by now it's no longer the Persians that constitute the threat, nor is it only 
the Macedonians that constitute the threat. It's the Romans uh, who, as you say, they came in in the third century originally. They moved to the east to expand their empire. And they conquered by the middle of the second century BC most of mainland Greece. And by the um, middle of the first century BC, so round about 50 BC, they've got the entirety of the ancient Hellenic, which is now Hellenistic world. So Egypt and Asia and uh, the southern Balkan Peninsula, what's today the state of Greece, these are all provinces of the Roman Empire. Romans hated Greek-style democracy. The Romans did not have an equivalent term for democracy in their own Latin language. And when they're talking to Greeks and they're using Greek for their official documents and so on, they don't like um, recognizing the fact that the demos, the masses, should have any power. And so though they themselves had, well, some people will call it democracy. I myself have various reservations. It's a, a complicated issue, but I think the Roman Republic is a managed oligarchy with populist or popular elements, as opposed to, strictly speaking, a democracy in the Greek sense. And the reason I take that view mainly is fundamental to Greek democratic notions are the notions of equality, that's to say, one citizen, one vote. All citizens are at bottom, in principle, equal to every other. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how aristocratic you are, what particular local grouping you come. In Rome, it mattered very much which local grouping you were incorporated in. The Romans used the word tribes. It mattered very much how wealthy you are, which which grade of wealth you are inscribed in, and everybody was assigned their wealth level. The censors, as they were called, were responsible for keeping the lists of every citizen and assigning them to a category, and each category had a certain political empowerment. In other words, it had so much political power in elections, in legislation. The Greeks believed that every citizen was equal to every other citizen, majority decision-making by public vote, that was the way to do it. And so Roman notions of equality are not democratic notions, and therefore, to me, they don't count as, uh, strictly speaking, in an ancient Greek sense, Democrats. On the other hand, in order to go to war, you have to consult the people. So the Roman citizens, in their appropriate voting units, they, they vote and decide. Um, Romans always voted in groups. They didn't vote as individuals. And so it's a case of uh, aggregating up the various voting units, not aggregating up the individual votes. Something like, and you can probably see where I'm coming from here, your um, electoral college, when you elect a president, that was a device introduced by the founding fathers who are very smart and well-educated. They knew their Roman classics. They didn't like ancient Greek democracy. They thought it tended towards faction and towards um, instability. So the electoral college was thought to be a check on direct 
popular decision-making. And that's indeed what happened, of course, in the most recent presidential election where uh, Hillary Clinton wins the popular vote by a long way, but Donald Trump wins the electoral college votes again by a long way. You point out the bridge that existed uh, between the ancient world and the 18th century. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that just a little bit. What happens to democracy in that intervening time, and why does it begin to reappear in the 18th century? Well, broadly speaking, it disappears um, totally as a viable uh, institution. The word has a sort of evanescent, uh, a fugitive existence, because it is um, when, if you're in the Middle Ages, you're reading your Aristotle, you're reading him in Latin. And so the word democratia will appear. But nothing remotely resembling anything like ancient Greek democracy existed after, shall we say, 200 um, AD, right the way through to the the Renaissance uh, and indeed beyond, I would say not until the 17th century. There's a certain, um, well, the word is used, il popolo, the people, in the Italian city-states of the high medieval and late medieval period. So from the 10th century onwards, you get the notion that uh, a ruler or a ruling elite is in some way representing il popolo. But il popolo does not mean the adult enfranchised citizens of Siena or wherever coming together and taking a vote by majority uh, decision. So, well, you know, it's extraordinarily complicated to explain how and why, but part of the uh, Renaissance rediscovery of the ancient Greeks and Romans, more particularly the Romans, of course, than, than the um, Greeks, is the notion of republicanism. So in other words, not monarchy. And yet, in the Middle Ages, of course, there are many, many monarchs knocking around. So the republican movement is, I think, the precondition, it's the precursor of the democratic movement, which is within a non-monarchical system, you empower ever more ordinary people simply on the basis of the fact that they are legitimate, uh, free, and local. They, they tick all the relevant boxes for belonging. But the first very striking instance of um, this notion of republicanism being translated into political action of a popular kind comes in the English Civil War. And in my book, I make quite a thing of the 1640s and the leveller debates, as they're called. In I actually come from Putney in South London. This is where they happened in 1647 to 1648. Oliver Cromwell's in the chair. He's the commander-in-chief of the uh, new model army. And the guys in front of him, are they're not the poorest of the poor, but they're not, on the other hand, all very, very rich. And they're all agreed on one thing, the king, Charles the first has to go. They're not agreed on what to replace it with. And in particular, they weren't yet prepared to go all the way to say, it doesn't matter how rich you are, 
you you can have a say. They weren't quite prepared to go to that. But the term leveller is actually a term of abuse by the more moderate, the less um, left-wing, if you like, of the Republicans in Oliver Cromwell's movement. And they accused the levellers of wanting to level down. It's the old accusation of, which was levelled, of course, against communists in the, in the 20th century. They wished to deprive the elite rather than actually to have anything positive and good to offer. They're merely destructive. So you get for the first time going back to the ancients and some sort of recognition that, gosh, yes, once upon a time, the people of Athens in particular, not so much Rome, had, gosh, they actually made decisions and they had institutions. They had their form of, and of course the the word was current in England in the 1640s, parliament. Well, what happens, I mean, this is my story now, parliamentary democracy begins in Britain in the 1640s, takes a huge leap forward in the 1680s with the so-called Bill of Rights after the um, overthrow of um, Charles, Charles II, and then James III, you got this William, William of Orange, and the kind of compact between the political elite of Britain and this incoming king. He was related, of course, but he had to be brought in from abroad, and he was Protestant. That was absolutely key to his being chosen. And this uh, is really the first time that the the rights of citizens through Parliament, through their representatives in Parliament, begin to be defined. And that's the basis on which, in the 18th century, there are uh, revolutions. I, I wouldn't say that there was an English revolution in anything like the same sense as there was a French revolution and an American revolution, which really... Um, destroy the basis, the existing basis of political power and instituted something totally new. But the common factor, of course, is anti-monarchy. So for the American revolutionaries of the 1770s, George III was a tyrant, and that Jefferson actually uses that word in the Declaration of Independence. And, of course, for the French revolutionaries, well, Louis XVI was, uh, of course, a tyrant, and um, they were very keen not just to overthrow him, but to execute him. So you have this reintroduction of democracy and its gradual expansion outward. To what degree were they referencing the Greek precedent, or to what degree had they... Uh, internalized the, 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 this idea that it was a failure, which had been the sort of the approach that you'd seen for, for centuries. Yeah, I think um, the well-educated, uh, especially um, the Americans, but to a certain extent the French also, they were more impressed by the stability until, of course, its um, collapse of the Roman Republic over many uh, centuries, which they saw as a compact, as a compromise, and a sort of balance of powers. Whereas what they saw as the defect of Greek democracy was it's all nothing. 
And so much too unstable, liable to result in civil war and a transition in very violent, uh, including uh, murder, from extreme democracy to sometimes extreme oligarchy, just a few being in power. What was desirable was some kind of um, stable, mixed constitution. And the, the Americans went for that in a big way. And there is a precedent for that in Greek writing. It goes all the way back to Aristotle, but it was more particularly Polybius writing about Rome. In the third century BC, the Roman constitution, that was the inspiration for many of the founding fathers of the American Republic. The, the French Revolution is slightly more complex and interesting because it covered quite a wide spectrum. And on the very, shall we say, left-wing spectrum, there was, for the first time really, um, people who seriously thought some sort of direct democracy, that is empowerment of ordinary people um, having a say and having a vote um, should come back. But they lost out, of course, and Robespierre gets rid of the uh, monarchy and gets rid of the monarch, but nevertheless then tries to become some sort of populist uh, ruler. He himself goes to the guillotine, and <clears throat> what happens to the French Revolution, he very quickly tips over into a uh, Bonapartist um, um, well, I would call it a kind of monarchy. And then, of course, um, there's a restoration of some sort of um, old-style monarchy. And then, finally, they move towards um, a stable republic, not till the 19th century. And that actually is the case both in the States and in our part of the world. In other words, though there's a move towards um, people, more people being empowered and parliament becoming empowered. That's not yet equated with democracy because democracy has this hangover, this bad association with instability, faction, even outright civil war. So it takes a good sort of two or three generations into the 1830s, 1840s, 50s, before the notion that what we have is a parliamentary republic becoming identified with a democracy. And Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is a, a good example of the way in which the, the word democracy, the thought of democracy, has become tamed, and government of the people, by the people, for the people, that is how he describes the revolution of the 1770s. Well, actually, not that many people, if you think about it, um, uh, not many people of color, not many women actually rule, and yet he's claiming they do, and he's claiming it's a good thing. Thing. And it's in another couple of generations, in other words, we're going into the 20th century before we get anything like universal adult suffrage. So regardless of your uh, wealth or whatever, so long as you're adult and uh, properly uh, entered on the relevant register and so on, you have suffrage, that is the vote. And that took quite a lot of violence. We're currently celebrating actually this very day or yesterday the erection of a statue outside Parliament of a woman, uh, Millicent Fawcett, who was a suffragette or suffragist originally, but they came to be called suffragettes arguing for women, at any rate, some women, to be enfranchised equally with some men. And then eventually that leads 1928 to full adult suffrage. 
It's interesting to think about how, you know, and since then, how we've come full circle. You've started to see this, you know, resort to referendums. And 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 to what degree uh, does that reflect perhaps a uh, an embracing of the Greek example, or maybe uh, a a re- or perhaps a, 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 a ignoring or a rejection of the Roman critique of the idea of direct democracy. I think it is uh, unconscious, largely. In other words, it's not. Well, you know, the Athenian democracy in its uh, direct form, it lasted uh, with a couple of um, interruptions for almost 200 years. It was on the whole. I don't think that was the thinking. It's that with modern technology, in particular now, of course, um, digital technology, one can consult, one can ascertain the views of a very, very large number of people very quickly. And it does seem to be a response to an impasse. In other words, if within a parliamentary system there is a very strong uh, element which is causing constant um, problems, constantly blocking or filibustering or whatever, if there is an issue on which the party lines do not correspond to the sides of the debate, in other words, each of the main parties is itself riven with uh, dispute and debate about what the right way forward is, then it's seen, and this is certainly how it happened in this country most recently, as a kind of um, useful get-out clause, a kind of resort to that will sort of clear the air and possibly settle something for for good. Well, of course, our referendum in 2016 had the exact opposite effect. <laughs> we did have a referendum way back in 1975 when I was actually teaching in Ireland, so I wasn't able to take part. But the point there was to um, solidify. In other words, we'd entered, the government had taken us into the European, it was then called the EEC, European Economic Community, and it was um, very largely an economic as opposed to political um, union or uh, community. And that was, though um, there was a lot of opposition from the same people who've always been opposed to any sort of um, collaboration with uh, other nation states of a vaguely equal nature. At any rate, that didn't quite generate the same reaction in terms of perception of the democratic process. And what I think happened, and one of the reasons why it was thought possibly a referendum would be a good idea in 2016, as it had been in Scotland in 2015, the issue of whether Scotland should or should not withdraw from the United Kingdom, the thought was, well, people keep saying that um, Parliament is too distant from the people. The people in Parliament are not necessarily the best people. They don't actually have our interests at heart, or they don't carry out our wishes as we would like. So let's give the people their say. And what I think went wrong was uh, making the question incredibly simple. Yes, no is not a sensible way to respond to an exceptionally complex question. And 
what it did was generate, well, this is perhaps partly coincidental, but it seems that all of us on a sort of daily basis, we're, we're more and more angry and we tend to hold um, exclusive views. We're, we're not in a compromising mood. So what a referendum does, which is after all based on a black, white, yes, no, it's either or, um, is aggravate difference rather than encourage resolution. Whereas a parliamentary election, let's take the 2017 June election to the UK Parliament, a hung parliament, but most citizens are prepared to accept the fact that that does actually reflect the very divided um, views of the electorate on all sorts of issues. So that does deprive any one party of being able to ride roughshod over the rest because it happens to command a parliamentary majority. So on the one hand, uh, this is something I raised in my afterword uh, in my book, in the paperback version, there was a democratic deficit, it was called. It was felt that the gap between the governors, that is, the parliaments, uh, and the governed us, uh, was too wide, and um, we weren't having enough of the say, us, we people. And so that partly was thought to be going to be satisfied, or the gap was going to be reduced by resort to a referendum. I think it's had, um, uh, well, pretty much a disastrous, I don't mean just the outcome, but the, the um, atmosphere in which politics is now conducted is pretty toxic. And I don't know if that's quite the case on your side of the Atlantic, but my impression is that it can be. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us if you're working on any projects in addition to the uh, Oxford uh, history you described? Well, thank you very much indeed, first of all, for talking with me and asking me uh, a series of really important, uh, difficult, but really important questions. Well, well thank you for, 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 for answering that. <laughs> I had to go, but um, I'm currently co-directing a project with an American colleague, and it's called The Oxford, again, the same OUP history of the archaic, that is pre-classical Greek world, between about 800 and 450 BC. And we're looking at uh, all aspects of the Hellenic world within those chronological par parameters. So we look not just at politics, which is mainly what I've been talking about, but also economics, warfare, gender, religion, uh, trade, and so on and so on. We, we cover the waterfront. And about 35 of us, some based in Europe, some in the States, some in Australia, we're getting together and each author of, um, it might be uh, a city, it might be a religious sanctuary, they have to address the same common topics. And then my co-editor and I, ideally, are going to try to pull together some strands to see what commonalities exist across the Greek world and or conversely, what differences are emerging by comparing developments in different parts of the Greek world. It sounds like a different project than uh, the Oxford history of the classical world, which was much more thematic in terms of politics, society, uh, literature, and so forth. You're, you're, it seems like you're doing much more of a, of, of a geographical focus. It's geographical and also archaeological because we're dealing with a period in which the primary evidence is material culture. And it's authentic, it's contemporary, it's not being played around with. Whereas 
typically the sources that are written in the 5th century and later, they have an agenda. And apart from having an agenda, people forget. Um, people uh, don't have good ways, and the Greeks did not have good ways of recording the data of their present. And so there wasn't uh, a kind of documentary record for historians, beginning with Herodotus and Thucydides, to pick up on. And therefore, we're trying to get away from any kind of written uh, slant, any slanted um, evidence or any slanted way of interpreting such evidence as there is. Well, Paul, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. And thank you, Mark. It's been a huge pleasure talking with you.